Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 163 being recorded on Monday, February 11th. 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. As a reminder, we are going to be at Etail West. And as a special gift to listeners, you can use the code Jason Scott. That's J-A-S-O-N-S-C-O-T, only one T on Scott for 20% off. But that's next week, and let's talk about today. Longtime listeners of the show will know that we have been talking about brands going direct or direct-to-consumer as a strategy for a very long time, since I think 2016 when we started. Uh, And uh, you also know we are huge fans of the digital native vertical brand trend as well. Uh, So today on the show, we are going to take a deep dive into a huge segment of the beverage industry, the spirits beer space, one of Jason's favorites, second only maybe to coffee. Well, we'll we'll find out. That'll be a question for Jason. You you don't have to keep those two separate. (laughs) Just just alternate. Okay. Up, down, up, down. Got it. Uh, To understand this space and what's going on, we are excited to have the rare two guests on the show. Uh, so crown Royal, Johnny Walker, Smirnoff, Bailey's captain Morgan, and one of my personal favorites, Guinness for strength. Uh, what do all these brands have in common? Uh, they have a single parent company, Viaggio, uh, and they are one of the largest global spirit companies. And that's just some of the highlights that I picked out from the brands. There were so many that the show would have gone long if we covered all the brands. Uh, we're excited to have on the show, Wayne Blum, who is the director of e-commerce strategy and partnerships with Diageo. Welcome, Wayne. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. And uh, I am excited to be here because uh, the e-commerce space is one in which I'm super passionate about and uh, figuring it out for beverage alcohol is is an incredible opportunity for Diageo. So excited to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Great to have you. Uh, And as listeners also know, I am a big believer in the on-demand economy. Uh, And one of the top companies in that space that intersects with the alcohol spirits world is Drizzly. uh, And they provide on-demand spirits. So joining us from Drizzly, we have Taylor Burton, and he is the VP of Strategic Partnerships. Welcome to the show, Taylor. Hey, guys. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time guest. Appreciate having me on today. Awesome to have you here, Taylor. Appreciate you both taking time out to educate our listeners about this uh, exciting and I would say somewhat emerging uh, space. For uh, those of you that haven't listened to the show before, we always like to get things started with a a brief background about how you came to the space. So uh, maybe Wayne, uh, you want to give us your sort of uh, uh, path to Diageo? Sure. So I joined Diageo September of 2017 to take on this econ strategy partnerships role. But uh, prior to Diageo, I had worked for Nestle, focused on direct-to-consumer and was running e-commerce digital operations and, and platform capabilities for probably their largest D2C business in the U.S. in the, in the beverage segment. And, uh, you know, I really kind of started to figure out you know, what is the future of consumer goods uh, through e-com and particularly uh, how the last mile comes into play. 
And uh, so that's kind of informed my thinking as I started to focus on BevOut. And then before Nestle, I was with American Express for quite some time. And that was, you know, really where I learned a lot about uh, digital, working with consumer data for targeting, optimization, loyalty, lifetime value, CRM, uh, all the great, what I would say, fundamental tools of, of understanding e-commerce and kind of promotional marketing in the digital landscape today. Very cool. So Wayne uh, went from chocolate to spirits. Taylor, uh, did you have as uh, interesting of a background as, as Wayne did? I <laughs> uh, did, did not come from uh, from chocolate to spirits, but um, I, I did come from the e-commerce space. So uh, part of my last three years of leading the charge on the partnership front here at Drizzly, um, I was over at PayPal and eBay um, working on the data product, specifically helping merchants create offers within the platform to target PayPal users based off of their purchase history. So um, a lot of history within the e-commerce funnel and more specifically in the payment space. Um, so it was a great opportunity for me to come over um, and start to apply that to um, what is a relatively new space um, in BevOut e-commerce. Cool. Is this a vintage Meg Whitman era eBay PayPal? or <laughs> A little bit after her. So um, I started there about six and a half years ago, um, spent uh, about three and a half years there and then jumped over to Translate. Um Cool. And was that the Bay Area kind of side of things or did you do that from? Uh, I worked out of the New York office. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the merchants and partners are obviously based out here on the East Coast. Um, so that really made sense for us and, and actually started off in the business unit uh, that was formerly uh, an advertising company called Ware uh, that was actually purchased by PayPal to run advertising uh, based off of their targeted data. Very cool. So Wayne, I don't want to say anything, but it feels like you are following uh, all of the traditional vices. So I have some theories about what what your next step in your career is going to be. Well, I'd be interested to hear that, but uh, but maybe that's one for after the podcast. Exactly. Maybe we'll hit that offline. Vaping, vaping, and cannabis are hot. That, <laughs> yeah, you have to be careful uh, in this category bringing up the whole cannabis thing. So we're we're not going to go there. But uh, Wayne, I, I do feel like regular e-commerce is maybe a little bit too easy. And so I, I suspect there are some uh, unique challenges around regulation and the distribution model um, in the alcohol and spirits uh, category. Am I right? And can you tell us a little bit about, about that, how that changes the business? Yeah, so, so certainly the regulatory environment means that we have to think about things differently, right? So the U.S. has this three-tiered system that essentially says Diageo is going to build brands and create these, these great products. And then we're going to, we're going to sell those products through to a distributor who then sells them through to retailers. And so uh, across this three tiered system, we essentially by law uh, can't go the traditional route of selling a product directly to a retailer, putting it into their warehouse and then having them fulfill out for retail distribution or, or for direct ship. And so, when we're looking at beverage alcohol through e-commerce in the regulatory environment, we're certainly not thinking about challenging the retail environment, but rather how do we play within it most effectively? And, and if you look at what's happening with last mile, this is, this is essentially our opportunity, particularly for beer and spirits, in, in my opinion. And so the products being close to consumers and then the retailers learning how to fulfill them compliantly, as you need to do for beverage alcohol, as you guys would understand, um, that presents the opportunity for for this type of category to to expand an e-com channel. Fair enough. So in like a general merchandise, you you sort of have two prevalent models. You have a um you know a, a 
a direct to consumer model where, you know, you have tons of brands launching their own websites, selling their own goods direct to the consumer. So that's Casper, Warby Parker, Bonobos, whomever. Um, you have retailers that own the goods and sell those goods direct to the consumer, like a target. Um, and then of course you have these really prevalent marketplace models like Amazon and Alibaba, um, where, where digitally you're just kind of introducing the buyer to the seller and the, the, um, uh, the seller actually, you know, owns the transaction because of that, that regulation and, um, sort of the locality and fragmented nature of that relationship, it seems way more likely that we're, that, that we won't or, or won't see as quickly any of those sort of direct to consumer models, uh, in, in alcohol and that, that, you know, maybe more of the momentum is on the marketplace side. Am I reading that right? Or is that an oversimplification? No, that, that's exactly it. So, so the momentum is going to come from the likes of a, a walmart.com who scales their grocery business and has the beverage alcohol category available to add to the basket, or it's going to come from uh, some flight some small instances like wine who can ship across state lines and who does have the ability to go direct to consumer in some cases. So wineries can stand up their own website and, and build a brand that goes direct and ship across state lines. But when we're thinking beer and spirits, we're really thinking about the, the last mile, either through the direct retailer or via these, these, partners, these partnerships or these platforms that operate like a three-piece seller like a Drizzly. Yep. Like the two other things that feel like are super important in this space so if you're an alcohol, uh, if you're a licensed seller of alcohol, you take on a bunch of obligations when you sell that alcohol to a consumer, age verification and, you, you know, potentially some liability around over-serving and some of these things. And so if you, if you have a liquor license and you sell online, uh, you still have those same obligations. And so it, it maybe makes things uh, more risky or more messy to outsource some of that last mile to a third party because you, you still have those those liabilities attached and you could potentially, you know, be at risk for significant regulatory fines or even the loss of your liquor license. You know, I, you guys are absolutely correct there. I mean, there is, there is definitely a, uh, there's definitely additional levels of compliance and complexity that retailers need to, to address when they are essentially handing this product off to the consumer. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a challenge for their product teams to solve. That's a challenge for their, compliance groups to figure out how they navigate the the right way of, of implementing checks and balances. But we've actually seen um, some, some really great innovation in this space. Uh, you know, think of, think of companies like an Instacart who do hand off the product and they do have the ability to age gate at the front end. So they present the terms and conditions and ask the consumer to validate that they, that they're within the, the compliant age to purchase. But then they also can scan, you know, at handoff to the consumer on something like a phone and validate that this is their driver's license. So we've actually seen really good progress in the, the age gating and the, the product management uh, side of this business. So retailers can start to test and, and expand into this category. Awesome. I'm excited to hear more about that. And then uh, one other follow-up. It, it also seems to me like as with any new product category, like consumer demand and, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, smart marketers are maybe ahead of the, the regulatory bodies a little bit. And so it's, it's not always 100% black and white, what is or isn't permissible 
um, in any locality. And so it's, it's, it's not even as simple as here's the rules that you have to follow, I'll follow them and you'll be fine. Um, every provider has to sort of make their own determination as the, to their level of risk in whether they're being completely compliant or not. Right. And so you could imagine big companies are, have more to lose and therefore are, are more risk averse than maybe some, you know, super small startups that aren't well-funded or those kinds of things. Is that, is that also true or am I imagining that piece? No, I think, I think that's absolutely correct. I, I, uh, I've seen a lot of, of what I would say kind of ambiguity in some of the language around what, what are and aren't the rules. Um, look, in, in this business, everything is kind of driven down to the local, uh, the state level, or even in some cases, the local level. You have dry counties, for example, that you know someone like a, a Shipt or an Instacart may need to solve for in terms of, can we make this product available in this zip code? Um, and if someone's ordering it outside of the zip code, you know, what are the rules of using various types of digital media that were never thought about when, you know, these laws and regulations were put into place uh, many years ago. So we're definitely in a bit of uncharted water or un, sort of unmapped territory to some extent. But uh, but the, at the same time, I think consumers are are kind of voting with their wallets. They're showing that they, they love the aspect of convenience. They want the ability to access the full basket and they want to be able to take what they traditionally purchased in, a, in an in-store traditional retail environment and replicate that for uh, full basket delivery. And so um, we think that if you follow the rules, if you understand the local laws and then you get creative around how you, you find new ways to serve the consumer that, you know, some of this stuff will become more clear and, and uh, you know, the, the category will find its way there. Um, just like every other complicated category has found its way to to the digital or e-commerce channel over time. So, uh, Taylor, now that Wayne's given us this good overview of, of kind of this three-tier system, uh, tell listeners, how does Drizzly inject into there? So we've got the brand brands, distributors, and retail. Where do you guys fit in? I saw on the site you're in 101 cities, so I'd love to know more about how you scaled so quickly. Uh, all, all those kinds of questions I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I first would start off by saying it, it, it wasn't as quick as we would have liked it to be. Uh, so we've been at this for you know well over six years at this point. Um, and, I, and I think cautious um, and controlled growth is really what you've seen out of us. Um, I think it's important that you know players in our position, specifically a category leader, um, you know, in early early to the space, are really asking for permission before going ahead and diving in and doing things that might be in a regulatory gray area. Um, and that's you know, in large part to not only keep the Drizzly business safe, but also the retail partners on our platform as well. Um, you know, retailers at the state and local level have been taking phone orders and even their own online orders for a long time. Um, you know, making and executing a purchase, um, you know, via an app like Drizzly. Uh, is really no different from a compliance perspective than it is a you know a, a person walking into a store and showing an ID. So all of those same rules will still apply. Um, when you look at our model, um, you're looking at a marketplace, right? We're that software layer um, that is simply allowing a customer to shop for that commodity good, in this case, alcohol, um, you know, at their local level. And what we basically do is integrate with the retailer's POS. Um, we leverage Braintree as a backend uh, to take the credit card payment from our Drizzly consumer and pass it on to the, the actual retailer itself. And then the retailer um, is actually the one making the fulfillment. So 
Um, typically, that's a W-2 employee of a retailer. In some states where it's compliant, uh, we have third-party integrations set up that the retailer can manage, whether that's a, a Postmates or a DoorDash or whoever it might be um, in the future. Um, and essentially, the consumer is owned by Drizzly uh, and controlled by Drizzly. And then the actual handling of the alcohol and, and store housing and, and ultimately shipping of the alcohol is handled by that retail partner, as is the cash. Does that answer your question? It does. So I imagine um, you've got to integrate to the point of sale system. Is that um, is that so you can pull inventory and then um, you know, those those point of sale systems, as Instacart has kind of painfully found out with grocery stores, uh, they are pretty archaic and they don't even have like graphics and or, I mean images and you know consumer friendly descriptions. Do you, uh, how heavy of a lift is it for for a seller to to implement Drizzly? Uh, it's, it's not a heavy lift as it used to be for the actual seller. Um, we're integrated in over 200 different POS systems. Um, we've seen every, anything from an analog system or everything rather, any, from an analog system all the way up to your, you know, your most state-of-the-art um, cloud-based when it's sales system. Um, so the roadmap's there. You know, we can onboard a new retail partner in about 24 hours if they have a cloud-based system. Um, it used to be a big challenge, um, but you know, we've done the groundwork again over the last six years to make that process as painless as possible for our partners. Um, but the reason why we do, you know, really require that integration is because when a customer is shopping and they, you know, click on a product and cart that product and then go through the process of checking out, it's not a great consumer experience to get to the end of the journey and say, hey, you know what, bud, I'm sorry, there's no Captain Morgan available for you because your store doesn't currently have stock. So um, having that really clean, crisp integration on the POS side is absolutely a key to, to Drizzly success. Cool. And then, um, so give us some characteristics of these sellers. Are they restaurants? They're convenience stores. They're, uh, you know, here in North Carolina, we call them ABC stores. Uh, so there's like this legal, you know, you can't even like have retail for certain spirits. Uh, what, what's the profile of the stores on the platform? Um, so it's a lot of um, local retailers, right? So the the folks that are typically competing with, with the larger chain. Um, with that said, we do have, you know, quite a few mid-sized regionals on the platform. Um, and as Drizzly has scaled over the last two years, especially, um, we start to see larger partners jump on the platform, um, primarily because of, of the amount of volume that Drizzly as a platform is, has driven and really that we've kind of anchored ourselves as you know, the go-to spot to buy and shop alcohol online. Um, so we expect the profile to shift a little bit um, you know, as we continue to grow and scale. Um, but our platform is an open platform, right? So we, we want all of the retailers to come on board. Um, and that's really what keeps our marketplace model um, moving, right? The more, uh, the more selection we can offer our consumers, the widest array of uh, price and, and ultimately delivery methods um, is going to make that shopping experience just that much better for an end consumer. Um, and at the end of the day, the, the best shopping experience typically will win. Um, and that's what I think that we've created here at Drizzly. Cool. Um, one of the things that, that uh, I'm a big Instacart user, one of the things they've kind of had an interesting challenge with is price shopping. So let's say I'm looking for the cheapest Coke Zero and I, you know, make it very hard to kind of like switch between stores to do that. Because mm-hmm. that's stores don't love price shopping. If people have, you know, if you have eight stores with the same SKU, how do you handle that, that experience? We're going to show them all, right? We want to leave that choice ultimately to the end consumer, but it's not just price that we found our consumers are shopping based off of. It's also how fast can that delivery be? Um, what type of rating does the retail store that's providing that price provide? Um, so they have a higher score or a lower score. Um, and then also other factors like store hours, um, et cetera, are going to start to play into that ultimate selection. 
Um, you know, we've also found that a lot of our, you know, local consumers will, you know, have a store that they like to shop to. Maybe they go there in person. They want to continue doing business with that store, whether that's in person or online. Um, so the number of factors are, are ultimately driving that. But I think that, you know, the point that you're hitting on the difference between the way Instacart's running their model and, and what we are doing here at Drizzly is really offering a wide array of choice and selection and, and really not trying to funnel a user down a specific path just based off of price. Well, one thing I've noticed on the platform is most of the sellers advertise one hour delivery, which is, which is pretty impressive. Is that, is that the market at work or is that a guideline you guys give them or is that kind of the standard in, in phone? Uh, it's, like, it's a great, it's a great question. We used to really shy away from saying one hour delivery. We didn't want to be lumped into this just purely on demand um, kind of world, but you know, it's, it's something that's becoming table stakes, right? Um, you know, a, a majority of our product is for immediate consumption um, and we understood that. So we actually took a, you know, a, a really data analytics approach to understanding what's causing our consumers to hit checkout. Um, a huge factor in that was the immediacy, right? So how fast can I get to that? When you look at a market like New York, um, you know, what would you guys guess the average delivery time here is just off the top of your head? New York is fast. So I'm going to go 30 minutes. Yeah, it's 30 minutes or less, right? Um, you know, I, I don't know what the exact, the exact number off the top of my head is, but it's probably closer to 20 minutes than it is to 30. Um, but it, it's, it's super fast, almost scary fast, right? Um, but that's also something that the New York market is very used to, right? Delivery's always been a thing here, um, whether it's laundry or Chinese food. Um, that consumer expects that quick and, and immediate. The other thing you have here in, in New York is, you know, delivery fees don't fly. So just like Amazon's done a great job of training consumers that, you know, through Prime, delivery should be free. A New York consumer already assumes it's free delivery. So we actually don't even tack on a delivery fee here in New York um, like we would in some other states. So you also have to understand what is that local market condition and how can you make sure you're checking all of the boxes in the decision tree um, that a person might think through as they're hitting checkout. Interesting. A lot of my agency colleagues are based in New York and I, I can't speak for everyone in New York, but for them, I can say not only is the delivery fast, but the consumption is probably really fast as well. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, uh, when you're looking at especially corporate consumers, I think that it's you know, one of these cultures where, you know, you're really seeing people put time and, and effort and energy into sending gifts to folks. Um, I think that that's something, you know, that we really bring to the table as well, um, trying to offer unique experiences. And that's some of the stuff that we've ultimately partnered with, you know, companies like Diageo on, right? Um, where you're building out a gifting experience and trying to offer something special. But still, again, working within the confines of, of local law. Awesome, um, and that that's a a great point to uh, kind of uh, throw it back to Wayne. Wayne, one of the things that's interesting to me is uh, again going back to kind of general e-commerce. Uh, you have this tension between like traditional CPGs that you know are houses of brands, um, and these new uh, digitally native vertical brands. Uh, that sort of reinvented the product and the customer experience for the, this newer digitally enabled consumer. And as we, we talked about on the top of the show, it seems because of the regulatory climate, it's probably unlikely Diageo is going to launch a bunch of new direct-to-consumer spirits. But I am curious if these digitally enabled consumers and the fact that people are you know more likely to place an order from Drizzly than they, they were six years ago, if that is changing how you think about product innovation and building brands like are you know are are there brands that are more digitally friendly in the Diageo portfolio than others or could we expect to see more in the future like how do you guys think about that no yeah i mean you are you're 100% correct about that so so it's true we will never have what are sort of digitally native or digital 
particularly boring brands that have a direct-to-consumer proposition. But what we absolutely do have is a category that I like to say consumers trying conquest. And so it's not, it's not like we're going to create a brand, stand it up, put it in a warehouse and ship it out and say this is a direct-to-consumer brand. But what we are doing is understanding like what is most culturally, culturally relevant and then using sort of the reach and power of digital to, to get that message out to our consumers. And then what we see in, in, on the back of that is people trying to conquest this stuff online to find it. So one of the best examples I come up with was Diageo released a limited edition uh, Game of Thrones eight houses to align to the eight houses in the show set of single malt scotches. And so you've got, you know, an Oban Night's Watch. And what we realized by looking at things like uh, Google search data was that this is this is where people go first and foremost to find something that they want to understand where it's available, how much it's going to cost, how much is in inventory. And so uh, when you don't have, you know, efficient e-commerce kind of warehouse stuff in the mix right now that can say, okay, you know, we're going to buy Google search terms, you find it on Google, you find it on Google, you buy it on Amazon in a way it's shipped. Um, guys that have the product understand how how to market it online can essentially start to, to sort of match up with those consumers to essentially find what they're looking for. And so telling that brand story digitally becomes the opportunity. And then partnering with retailers, partnering with companies like Drizzly to help bring that stuff to life on life online and then essentially close the loop on uh, placing that final order becomes what I would say the closest thing we have to a digitally native brand and because because the category is just so engaging for consumers in so many ways it's a much more thought out purchase uh they want to understand how to use it or they want to understand the story behind the brand um i definitely think building brands in digital is is a great strategy to think about for this category and then starting to get creative and how we essentially like close the loop on the purchase side becomes the next step in that customer journey. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is a good point there, Wayne, um, you, you gave the Game of Thrones example. That was a new product release. Um, when that product is released, it's important that, you know, Wayne and his team and, you know, other folks that are they're on the supplier side that are launching these products are making sure that, you know, Drizzly and the other platforms have the correct collateral, right? Do we have the right product images? Do we have the right bottle specs? You know, all these things that an e-commerce consumer expects to see um, before or, or right at launch. Um, so that's, that's another thing to think about as you're, you're going down that brand building path. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. So, and Wayne, I would imagine new skills for a, a, a company with that's been around as long as Diageo, like not only do you have to have great digital merchandising to support uh, Drizzly and company, but I'm even assuming your traditional wholesale partners, you know, there's a, there's a lot more buy online, pick up in store than there used to be. So I, you know, I think the Total Wines and Bevmos of the world are probably doing more of that. And now you have all this grocery pickup in Walmart and Kroger. Like, you know, I'll bet you just digital marketing and digital shopper marketing chops are, are becoming a much higher priority across the board at Diageo. Yeah. And I think that's, that's part of the mandate of our team. So when we, when we were formed just over a year ago, a lot of it was just going after kind of the low hanging fruit stuff. So do we have an internal PIM? How do we audit the images we have? If we don't have 400 and some odd, you know, brand approved product shots and descriptions ready to go, 
Do we use an in-house supplier or do we outsource the production work to get that stuff set up? You know, who is our, our syndicating partner? Do we try and build something internally? Do we go to like the likes of a Salsify, which ultimately we end up doing to uh, distribute the content? So we, we realized like just showing up in the most fundamental ways uh, was incredibly important for us in the, in the sort of phase one of this journey. Once we got that in place, then you're absolutely right. It starts to become this, this uh, more ideated space of how do we think about marketing on the back of this content. Now that we know we can trust uh, that the content is of a certain caliber and quality to syndicate to the retailer. You know, it's not an easy conversation to have with, with any national retailer or any regional guy, if you will, if, uh, if they come back to you and say something like, well, we don't even have product images and descriptions for your brand. So I don't really, I don't really know what we can start to do for e-commerce here. And, uh, you know, that, that's been the journey for, for us to date. And that's, you know, and I think that's a similar journey to most of what CPG companies have gone through over the last five years is like, you want to, you want to do something aspirational and you want to go big, but, uh, there's just a ton of work to do when it comes to establishing your brand presence online correctly, effectively, and then at scale. So, you know, you look as good with a Walmart.com or an Amazon as you do with, uh, you know, a Kroger or a Meyer and Albertsons and anywhere else your, your products are available in some type of online catalog format. Taylor, over on the Drizzly side, I saw you guys recently raised a round of $35 million. That was good. Hopefully, you got a, your fair share of that. Uh, and then uh, that's, uh, I think, uh, according to Crunchbase, that that says you guys were up to $70 million total. Um, so there's clearly, you know, must be growing very quickly to, to get that much venture capital. And there's demand for your service. Uh, we had Deloitte on the show uh, several times talking about what they call the bifurcation, where the U.S. is split into kind of the value-oriented consumer and convenience-oriented consumer. Uh, I know uh, at my current company where we do on-demand car care, we've been just surprised by some of the things we've seen there. Uh, I'm curious, what have you guys seen uh, and, and kind of how do you think about your, you know, I guess it's your seller's customer, but I'm sure you guys see all the data and hear some interesting stories there. I mean, at the end of the day, the consumer is a drizzly consumer, to be clear. So we're doing all the work um, on, you know, customer acquisition, et cetera, um, to drive the volumes for our local retail partners. That's that's one of the big value layers we provide outside of the software. Um, I think what we're seeing is a more receptive consumer um, to buying alcohol online. I think that that was one of the big hurdles that we've really overcome in the last year and a half or so is that a majority of the folks that were shopping was kind of more by accident. And, you know, it still felt like they were doing something that might be considered illegal or on the fringe, but you know we've done a really good job in making sure that our messaging is clear and you know that we're putting the retailer out front, right? So when you shop within the Drizzly experience, you're seeing which local retailer um, you're actually shopping from, and and that's crystal clear to a consumer on our platform. I think that that's been a big piece of it, but still, you know, lagging the general you know mass grocery e-commerce, um, you know, by a significant percentage. Still, we're still looking at below two percent. Of, of total bad sales, but you know, by by building groups in Diageo like Wayne and his team have done, I think that that kind of shows the importance from a category perspective of, of where alcohol e-commerce is headed. Um, if that makes sense, when I start to look across the ecosystem of you know who's going to be a core Drizzly consumer, it, it's who you'd think, right? It's it's uh, you know millennial consumer, probably urban based, comfortable with shopping or doing most of their shopping online. Um, that's really who's who's coming to to shop through Drizzly. Got it. 
Um, and then any interesting time trends is this kind of, is there a peak time from like, you know, eight to 10 PM? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's exactly what you'd think. Um, you know, you're, you're seeing a lot of stock up occasions, you know, happening later in the week. Um, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, that's more for searching and sorting and, and planning, if you will. Um, and then as you start to roll into Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, that's when we're going to start to peak out. And then obviously, you know, Saturday's big and, and anytime that there's a holiday um, that has any celebratory tinge to it, um, you're going to see an uptick in orders. Um, you know, so think New Year's Eve, Super Bowl, St. Patrick's Day, um, you know, Day of the Dead, et cetera. Uh, one thing I thought that was interesting, and, and we we've, we've often struggled with this, is a lot of the on-demand guys they go app only because it creates fun user experience, makes it easy to measure the metrics. Um, but I noticed you guys also have web. You have you have a great app, but you also have kind of a web you know, transactional model. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the rationale in that? And any interesting data on or anything you can share there? Yeah, I mean, a majority of our our orders do happen within the app experience, and then iOS specifically. Um, but with that said, uh, it's important that we meet our consumer on their terms. So that we're everywhere where a consumer would want to shop and that that experience is, you know, a good experience, right? We don't want to create an, an MVP, if you will. Um, we want to create an MLP. So we want a minimal lovable product. Um, and I, I think that that's something that we've taken very seriously in the beginning. You know, I personally shop on the website when I'm shopping on Drizzly. Um, I'm typically putting together a little bit larger basket sizes. And I find that, you know, having that extra space um, gives me the brain space to think through my order. Um, but with that said, you know, I, I look at my wife and when she's shopping, it's, you know, I've got my favorites and there's a favorite thing, uh, favorite tab, if you will, um, you know, across the app. And she just, you know, clicks the couple bottles of wine she's looking for, for, um, you know, for bachelor night with, with the girls and she's off on her way. So um, really trying to meet all of our consumers where they are. I think that, you know, you also see, you know, an uptick of web use on our corporate consumers um, just because they're sitting at their desk and they've already got a couple tabs open. So that makes sense. Uh, and speaking of corporate consumers, I was poking around your site and saw some pretty interesting programs. It uh, seems like you guys have done some interesting things there. Uh, tell our audience maybe how that came to be in some of the programs you have for the corporate side. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, we've got a great head of corporate over at Drizzly. Um, Tim has done a phenomenal job of building that practice out for us. It's, it's an area that it actually took us a little bit longer to, to really take a deep dive in. We've always had corporate customers, but we you know, admittedly haven't invested um, in a way that, you know, would show that we really cared in corporate and, until really um, this latest round of funding. So um, I think that what we've tried to do to date is really white glove the service for our corporate customer. It's obviously a, you know, a larger order. Um, there's more logistics involved, whether it's coming through a docking bay or whatever it might be. And typically when you're also ordering for that corporate consumer, you're not scheduling it for an hour later. You, you planned a little bit of advance and you want to make sure that you really hit that delivery window because when a, you know, a happy hour in an office is taking place at 6.30. They mean 6.30. They don't mean 7.30. Um, so those are all important factors. Um, I think that you, you mentioned this um, when we were chatting prior, but, um, you know, we also have, have taken the opportunity to make some partnerships with you know, some other folks out there. You, you mentioned the Buddy Fridge. Um, we, we power that on the back end, um, you know, which is a great way for offices that have this, this cooler unit within their office to automatically reorder their favorite beers online. Um, but doing a lot more in that space. And I think that from an integration perspective, you can expect to see more and more of that stuff happen um, as Drizzly becomes again synonymous with alcohol e-commerce. I, I think it's obvious, but anyone that had the title chief strategy, digital marketing revenue officer uh, would definitely have to have a smart alcohol fridge that's immediately. <laughs> uh, 
I'd be, I'd be shocked if Jason doesn't. No greater. Not on order. No greater. You think you're mocking me, but like, uh, <laughs> we, I feel like we have a full time team at Publicis that's dedicated to our uh, in office alcohol <laughs> consumption technology. So there, I, I, I literally think we have kegs in our office that are on Twitter and tell you when there's a when they've been tapped and and all that sort of stuff. You just need to to move to the reorder part of that cycle, and and uh, Drizzly can deliver. Exactly. Done. I was just going to say, I got to get you guys introduced to Kim. She's uh, she's phenomenal. I do want to go back, uh, Taylor. You talked a little bit about like some of the differences between how you and your wife shop, the leveraging of the using of, of uh, lists, and and that's one of the mixed blessings with digital shopping for a lot of these categories, like in in grocery. Um, on the on the one hand, it, it makes reorder and it, 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 it uh, much easier, and it improves uh, convenience and and all these things that consumers are demanding more than ever. The flip side is there's less opportunities for serendipitous discovery of new brands and things like that. And so I've noticed like in the grocery space, you're seeing some new interesting partnerships and opportunities that the marketplaces are inventing. So, you know, interesting promotional units from Instacart or interesting data partnerships where the marketplace shares data back with the sellers that they can use to create new experiences. Like, are you guys... um, seeing that in the alcohol space as well? And is there, are there any interesting um, sort of brand marketplace partnerships that, that, uh, yeah, I mean, we're promising? doing a lot out there. We, we talk with a lot of what we consider non-endemic partners. So, you know, a recent one, um, Netflix just launched a show called final table. Um, and we did a partnership with them where, you know, it, it's essentially, you know, their answer to uh, a food show type contest um, where we basically paired wines, um, that corresponded with, with each of the different episodes. And then we actually went to some of our retail partners and created in-store displays. So taking online and offline and kind of merging the two, but creating a little bit of hype around the show. And then specifically about some of the wines that are brought up and, and talked about on that show. So tons of stuff like that. Um, you know, we, we've got a phenomenal data science team um, that really looks at all aspects of, of the ordering process, but also like what people are ordering at a local level, Right. Um, you know, we've done a, a co-authored report with Nielsen in the past. I think that the biggest, you know, kind of fun learnings that we've had are people really care about what's being made at a local level, right? So, you know, when we see a local badge on a product, so, you know, let's take and, and Wayne earmuffs, but a Tito's in Texas, for instance, and we write uh, local on it, you're going to see about a 10% increase of sales for that product on, on Drizzly. Um, same goes for, you know, the, the various craft brewers. Um, we really like to highlight that fact that, hey, this is made around the corner from you and, and support that that local guy. Uh, and and uh, I feel like the gloves just came off now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're, we don't have as many local badges because I think some of our best stuff happens to be made in Scotland. But I would argue that we also have some awesome brands that are local to the U.S. and uh, and we should have local badges on them, too. And I know we actually do, Taylor. So, uh, yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, you, get, you got the badges. Now, and, and I, I, I think the other thing, you know, to think about too, and, you know, when you're serving up something to a uh, consumer, you mentioned this earlier, I think it might have been Scott, but personalization is key. Um, I think that that's an area where you're going to see Drizzly invest over the next, you know, six to 12 months heavily in and making sure that we're putting the right product in front of the right consumer at the right time, you know, especially given the, the way that, you know, the, the e-commerce world works today. We have very limited attention spans to grab that shopper and, and put the right thing in their basket. 
Um, you know, so the, the better we can do at helping push products up the browse grid that our, our consumers have a higher propensity to purchase, um, the more likely they are to check out and continuing to shop with our platform. Uh, Wayne, not necessarily enticing you to throw Drizzly under the bus unless you want to, but um, in, in general, like, do you guys feel like you're, you have access to enough data and enough promotional opportunities via all these new touch points to do the kind of marketing that, that you'd like to do? Or is there an opportunity for, for your partners to do more? Look, I would say we're getting there. There's always room for more. But, uh, but what we've realized through some of these, what I've called kind of the fourth tier of, of the category, the Drizzlies, the Instacarts, the Postmates who don't hold the license or really always manage the fulfillment of the product is that they do tend to, to know more about the consumers they serve than some of the traditional retailers. And so um, the data we can get from them is, is it's really interesting for us. We get to understand uh, the notion of usage occasions, but now we get to get into purchase occasions. So, you know, we've spent a lot of time traditionally learning about when people consume our brands, but knowing about when they buy them is also super interesting. Knowing about where they buy them is really interesting. Knowing about, you know, high price points, low price points, you know, all the different stuff that you could get from, from e-com and through these, these particular channels and partnerships. Uh, it's it's all new data for for the category, but it's certainly data that uh, I think can inform our, our strategy in a whole new way going forward. Well, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk about Amazon. So um, <laughs> I'll, I'll pick on you since Wayne went last. Um, do you you know every startup's worst nightmare is you go build all this out and then Amazon says, oh, that's an interesting space. Let's go replicate what Drizzly did. How, how do you guys answer the the Amazon question? Yeah, the Amazon question. That's everyone's favorite. Um, you know, I think, you know, really straightforward. We'd be crazy not to think about Amazon, right? Um, you know, they, they own headspace in, in every e-commerce platform, marketplace or otherwise, um, just because of how successful they've been. Um, I think it, it honestly is, is helpful to have them in the space. Um, you know, I don't want to use the word foil, but I will. Um, because it helps build consumer confidence that, you know, back to my earlier point that, you know, buying online when done the right way and, and with the right partner is a very legal transaction. It's something that, you know, makes the, the buying and shopping experience better. Um, I think that where we've got an advantage is, is really in our marketplace, right? So our, our ability to show, you know, to your point, up to eight to 15 um, different retailers in a single location with that same commodity product um, and then allowing a consumer to shop based off of what characteristics of that retailer are the most important to them, whether it's price, selection, et cetera. Um, you know, and, and I think that what we've also really proven, and, and it's been one of our biggest modes too, is you know this is a highly regulated good, right? And Drizzly was built at its core to handle the you know the support and sale, right, from a software perspective um, of a regulated good. Um, so I think that. You know, just slapping on an alcohol category, that's why you haven't seen massive numbers out of Instacart and Postmates and some of the other companies out there, um, because it's not just that, right? It's a very different shopping experience. Um, I'm not talking about the bottle of wine that gets thrown into a shopping cart that, you know, um, yeah, I might drink half of and cook with half. Um, I'm talking about the alcohol-specific driven sale. Um, and I think that that's going to be our advantage um, now and, and again, moving forward, especially as we start to grow at our national retail presence. Yeah, I mean Amazon is is testing this category, and we we talk to them, and and 
you know, they do have availability through Prime Now in Seattle, through Fresh in Illinois, through uh, Prime Now, I believe, in, in Sacramento and, and Southern Cal is coming from what we understand soon. Um, where Amazon has an opportunity to get better, to Taylor's point on this, you can't just add one more category and, and expect it to be successful, is, you know, the, the, the proposition that consumers looking for uh, when they go to a liquor store is it's obviously price is important, but really selection. And so, you know, the Prime Now facility where they're fulfilling out of doesn't always have all the space that I think they would need to, to present a wide enough assortment, uh, including various sizes, right? Some people want 175, some people want 375s, uh, you know, big bottle, small bottle format. Um, that's a challenge logistically that uh, that I think anyone needs to overcome, including Amazon, to really build out an interesting proposition for for spirits online in particular. And you know, I think Trisley's done a great job in it. The marketplace model essentially lets me, as the end user on the app, pull up a zip code, uh, say I'm interested in bourbon, and essentially get you know almost any bourbon you could think of from from the lowest price point all the way up to you know, bottles that are approaching $1,000, $2,000 for, you know, a brand like maybe a Pappy Van Winkle that, uh, that anyone could be looking for. And so when you have that proposition and you have it almost scaled nationally at this point, it, you know, you start to see a lot of opportunity um, for e-commerce. Uh, conversely, when you're operating at a very local level like Amazon or, or most of the retailers are right now, um, you've got you've to think through that. How do you how do you essentially provide that that assortment that people are looking for, but also you know let people come into the top of the funnel at any sort of scale and efficiency to uh, to make this thing work like you could do with say a diapers or you know any of the more traditional goods that are available ubiquitously everywhere. Yeah, and to the drizzly point, I can't think of an example where Amazon's done like, you know, 200 friendly integrations with point of sale systems. And, and then you know, uh, like Amazon pay hasn't had a lot of adoption with, with retailers because everyone's kind of like, you know, Hey, uh, this feels really weird having Amazon kind of in, in my store. So in, in some ways their scale, I think can hurt them because they're not going to, it'll be very hard for them to build a network of partners like, like you guys have. Everyone just, I don't know. Yeah, I think, I mean, when you look on Prime now, I think the experience for some of these third-party sellers, including Whole Foods, which is treated like a third-party seller, uh, does have some opportunity to optimize the way it's presented. And then, you know, I know for our category, there there's a lot of price sort of disparity. So I think consumers would expect someone to, to see the price options, but then also understand why uh, you know, there are these different prices presented to them. So certainly a challenge that that uh, Amazon, I think, would need to address or, or think through a little bit more closely was they, you know, as they look to scale in something like a 3P model. Totally agree with you. Yeah. And then um, the big thing that's happened uh, in more, more mature, meaning higher adoption categories, is now Amazon's competing themselves with private label, right? And uh, do you guys worry over at Diageo about uh, Amazon basic beer and Amazon basic vodka? So I, I don't. And the, and the reason that I think we are, we are not uh, so concerned with something like a, a digitally first private label brand with, with someone like Amazon is that 
Um, well, one is technically speaking, there is this, this rest of market rule with BevAlk. So you can't necessarily create a, uh, a brand and not make it available. Now, you know, Costco does have some really good pr- propositions with like a Kirkland branded vodka or a Kirkland branded tequila. But, um, you know, I think when consumers are, are looking for spirits in particular and beer, um, I think they're looking for that brand story. They're looking for that experience. Uh, you know, this is this is generally a more thought through purchase, and you know, the the price point is not uh, that of your standard consumer good. And so, um, you know, we we have trust in our brands, and we we really see the strength of our brands as as you know fighting through this you know potential disruption from private label, and and one in which I saw very very closely play out when I was at Nestle. Um, it's just, it's just not as easy to, you know, to win in a private label proposition in, in this category as it is with any other, with any other category where you could directly source manufacturing. I mean, the other thing with private labeling is essentially you do have to buy it back from the distributor. You can't direct source. So, uh, the barriers to entry for private label are a little bit higher as well. Yeah, and I guess to double down on Wayne's point, Drizzly strongly believes that brands should win online. You know, they've done the brand building with the consumer. Um, they've brought them down the path. I, I think that the the kind of one big point specifically within the e-commerce world is they need to continue to prove that value prop and why that brand stands out and should be shopped for to that e-commerce consumer as well. So, you know, some of the traditional channels that have always worked um, should be also augmented with some of the things that Wayne and his team are doing to really build out that e-commerce shopper and make sure that they end up being, you know, a Diageo and consumer or an Anheuser-Busch or a Gallo consumer. That's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. You know, one of the things that's always interesting to me in, in a, a market that's still really early in its digital adoption curve, like alcohol and spirits is right now is that you tend to have a pretty fragmented market, right? So, um, We've obviously spent a bunch of time talking about uh, Drizzly here as one of the market leaders, but there's there's a ton of players trying to uh, win a, a piece of the space, and and uh, you know each with a slightly different uh, go to market approach. From Giaggio's standpoint, Wayne, do you have to participate with all of them? Do you make some big bets on the ones you think are going to win? Like, you know, what is your strategy like early on when there you know isn't necessarily a, a single clear winner? Yeah, I mean we're we're still in that that building phase of e-commerce for sure. And, and a lot of our time over the last year is just understanding what's happening across the market. Alcohol is in a lot of ways a very, it's certainly fragmented, as you said, but it's also in some ways uh, locally driven. So, um, you know, we, we understand who is going to be the best strategic group to align with in New York, but that might not also be this, the best guys to figure out to partner with in a Texas or in a West Coast play. So um, the the play right now is continue to test and learn. And, and I think that's that's fairly consistent with anything you'd hear in anybody in e-commerce is constantly test, constantly learn and and get get ready to pivot really quickly as things change. But uh, but because there's no sort of clear national front runner right now in, in this space. Um, we need to figure out how to win it at every light, at every level, and a lot of those levels are are hyper local. Come on, Wayne, no national front runner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's you know I'd say if you, the closest thing to a national franchise in BevAlk right now is is Total Wine, um, but uh, but even they don't truly you know 
have a presence in all 50 states. So, uh, yeah, so we are we are definitely navigating the uh, the ultra complex for sure. Taylor, I have a, a startup question for you. Uh, you guys have this cool red bear as your logo. I, I'm guessing why that's there, but I don't want to make assumptions. Tell tell is there a founding story about the drizzly bear? I, I was I was wondering when that question would come up. You know that that's a that's a tough question. Um, you know I, what I can tell you is the name Drizzly um, actually came from uh, a couple of the co-founders' moms getting together and picking the, that as an option off the board um, as far as names goes. And then um, very early on in, in Drizzly's life, uh, we had a branding agent co- agency come in and um you know give us some some marketing tips and tricks and feedback etc and one of the things that they came up with was was associating drizzly with this drizzly um you know and not a lot of thought went into it um after the first logo iteration with the drizzly bear was done um you know i think it's something that deep down no one's ever fully understood but at this point in our our life it's what we're known for and um we've all become pretty pretty affectionate to the bear so um the bear the bear will live on that that is awesome, and uh, as it works out, that's going to be a great place to end it because it's happened again. We've blown through all our allotted time, uh, but if folks have burning questions about the category, let's keep the conversation going on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, as always, if you really enjoyed this episode, we'd sure appreciate that that five star review on iTunes. Uh, and as a reminder, uh, if you want to meet Jason and Scott in person. Uh, in Palm Springs next week. You can do it at Etel West and there, there'll be a promo code uh, in the show notes for you. But uh, Wayne, Taylor, uh, real pleasure ch- chatting with you and uh, really grateful for your time today. Thank you guys. This was a lot of fun. Good guys. Thanks guys. Yeah, and uh, before before we let you go, uh, if folks want to find you online, are you guys uh, prolific tweeters or Snapchatters or Instagrammers? Any uh, uh, any business writing there that where people can find you? You can find me at at Wayne G. Blum on Twitter. Um, although I mostly just tweet about New York sports and things like that. But uh, but happy to entertain a conversation. Wayne's a big LinkedIn guy. Find him on LinkedIn. Um, me me the same. T Bird eighty six on Twitter. But we're uh, we're LinkedIn folks. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you guys taking uh, time out of your busy days to join us on the show. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 